as a church, we've been working through um, Paul's letter to the Romans, doing a series looking at the, the idea of God's grace and the gospel, and it's been amazing. Um, but today we're actually taking a break from that. Uh, again, I feel like the year 2020 is a big transition year. Uh, coming out of a pandemic and kind of back into somewhat of normal life. I don't know what it's going to look like, um, but there's a huge transition happening, and that's true at a lot of our uh, the companies we work at. Uh, if you work at a school, that's definitely been the case, um, and as the church as well, uh, family rhythms with extended families, all these different things. And so today I just want to give a picture of what I think God's calling us to in this next um, season. And so uh, in the New Testament, there's these things called epistles, um, and uh, Paul wrote a lot of the epistles, and they were letters written to specific churches at a specific time for a specific reason. Uh, New Testament scholars call them occasional documents, and they were written for an occasion. Much of our understanding of Christian living and stuff like that that we learn from the New Testament are from these epistles. And so um, Paul's like, I want you to know this about how to steward, you know, X, Y, or Z as a follower of Jesus. Um, and again, usually in the letter, the author would write things that they saw God doing in the church that he wanted to encourage them about. In other areas of church life, he wanted to challenge them in to grow. Like, man, you guys haven't been faithful in this area. And so today's message is my attempt to give you that kind of uh, encouragement and exhortation, kind of epistle style. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying my sermon today is an epistle in the New Testament. We're not going cults. It's not new scripture. I'm just saying that 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 idea, okay, that style of a message. And so um, I have three things I want to challenge us to in these next few months as we have some big transitions. And the first one is this. I want to challenge us to gather and scatter with God's family. I want to challenge us to gather and scatter with God's family. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, um, for familiar verses, if you've kind of been in church for a while, and if you haven't, I'm stoked to read it to you for the first time, but it describes the early church, a church that had almost no money, had um, very little to no power, a church that was under persecution, but a church that, um, even though it was in a fragile season, God was doing a lot in and through, and the church feels very fragile today. I'd say the, the, the big C church coming out of a pandemic, but also um, our church. It's, it's a transitional season, and transitional seasons uh, are times that were fragile. However, just because circumstantially things aren't as easy as maybe they once were or could be does not change the fact that God is more than able to do more than we could ask or imagine in and through these less than perfect contexts. Does that make sense? So I think we can learn a lot from this church, all right? So Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. Uh, fellowship, by the way, it's Greek word koinonia. It's, it's, it, don't think fellowship like potluck, all right? Um, it's a deep connection, deep relational connection through thick and thin, actually. All right, so a fellowship hall or whatever, like at an old school church, um, there's a part of it, right? There, there's, there's breaking of bread, which we see here, um, but it's, it's more than that. It's a like deep kind of... Um, the ups and the downs of life together, all right? Uh, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. By the way, it doesn't say they sold everything and they didn't own anything. Uh, we know for a fact that they had some large houses that that hosted church gatherings, um, but they made sure that no one was in need, that no one in the church family, they sold what they needed to to make sure, uh, it's not that no one, it's not that you weren't allowed to have anything, 
it's that uh, there shouldn't be anyone who is, has nothing. Uh, no one's on their own, starving or something like that, that they took care of one another. 46 says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this is a powerful church, an exciting church, supernaturally powerful. Again, not power from an earthly sense, but God is doing a lot and people, it's blowing people's minds. Day by day, people coming to know the person of Jesus. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. I want this to be uh, my son Calvin's like, life first, right? He, he, he eats, but he's, he's very picky joyful, sincere hearts, right? They're living life as family. But I want to zoom in on verse 40, um, verse 46. It says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke, broke bread from house to house. So there's the temple, and there's house to house. Now, the temple would have been the big temple in Jerusalem, probably uh, the temple courts, and so there's this central place that people from all around kind of Jerusalem would go to gather, and they would have been familiar with this as Jews, like they would have gone there even before they met Jesus as Messiah. Um, but, but now they're doing that, but then they also are house to house. And you can imagine that everyone that's at the temple courts, that can fit a lot more people than probably a house, right? So there, there are, there's a large kind of gathered central, centralized group, and then there is a decentralized kind of scattered set of believers, there is a lot of what are called one another commands in the New Testament, like love one another, bear with one another, serve one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, on and on and on it goes. And I don't think you can one another with everybody all the time, or you don't, if you one another everybody, you one another, you one another nobody. So I think there's people you live life together with, and here's why I say that. I think that, that there's a reality that there was quite a few believers at the temple courts, you know, there's a few thousand and so it was likely that they did not know everyone at temple courts, though they gathered together. But there were some people that were house to house. You can imagine a persecuted church. You needed to know who you were inviting into your home. Right? I just got back from Northern Africa. Um, we just visited uh, Kyle and Kyle last week. And you can't just walk around and go, hey, who wants to come to a church service? Come on in, right? Uh, there is a level of security and protection. You have to think through carefully who you invite into your home, though you still do it. And so likely the home, the house to house, there's a connection to one another, a, a relational connection. Um, they're clear on who each other are. And then there's a temple court space where they're worshiping God um, for encouragement, right? So, so I want us to think through these two spaces. And the first one's temple courts. Now, um, I'm not going to encourage all of, all of us to move to Jerusalem and like hit the wailing wall and like let's get into the temple courts. Uh, but I do think there's something to learn here that there's a centralized space we could go to consistently. And I'm going to say that, that for us, that's Sunday gatherings, Okay, and I think Sunday gatherings can happen in a centralized space. So, so mark your calendars real quick. By the way, um, I, I've never done a like relaunch of a church during a pandemic. I know in the in the pandemic relaunch books, they're like, don't do it during the summer. Uh, but unfortunately, we are in the summer. Okay, that was a joke, right? This is a not a way I would normally plan strategically to do this. But save the date, June twenty seventh. Uh, two weeks from today, we will be moving back to North Park. Um, we're going to be gathering at Jefferson Elementary School again. Got some muffled applause in the back. I like that. All right, June 27th. I'm going to miss the planes. Don't get me wrong. 
Um, but, uh, but, but, but the gathering must go on. So June 27th, we're going to be there. We will likely be um, indoors uh, by July. Uh, we, will, we will figure out a myriad of options to make sure everyone feels okay. Um, but we are moving back to Jefferson, and we are very, very excited about that. Uh, I just want to say real quick, would you guys give it up for Allie um, for, for a second? Um, she has consistently as a church, we are obviously, we're a church plant. Uh, we're a younger church. We have never owned a building. Um, we never had a long-term lease in a building. We've often been in schools and theaters and renting. And that has led to over the years, there's been a few weeks at a time where we didn't have a place to gather, obviously pandemic. Uh, we didn't have with the school and all that stuff. And so she has consistently and faithfully um, stewarded, um, stewarded her influence to um, help us get spaces, which included this space. And so I just want to say thank you so much uh, from the bottom of our heart, man, for helping provide a home for us to gather in over these last few months. It has meant the world. Um, and so um, as far as like a fallback, it's been amazing um, to be here. So we really appreciate you, Al, and we appreciate Liberty Station and everyone that, that's let us be here. Um, so, so, but, but we will be June 27th moving to back to Uptown uh, Jefferson uh, for gatherings. Uh, and here's what I want to say. Um, will you prioritize the gathering? Um, again, I think a lot of us were rusty uh, with church because of the pandemic, but will you um, freshly um, reprioritize the gathering. I know today, I think we have quite a few people out of town on a trip, and that's okay. By the way, in the summer, that's going to happen again. It's not ideal to do this during the summer, but it's where it's what we have to do. Um, but if you're not out of town, will you re? If you're a member, will you prioritize the Sunday gathering again? Um, it's hard for us to get a sense of what God is doing among us um, if a third of us aren't there every Sunday. In a, real, in a real sense, we're kind of replanting the church. And one of the things that I do a lot when I'm with planters is um, I'll really encourage them to encourage their people to prioritize the gathering because oftentimes they have like 25 people at the beginning of the church plant. And I go, man, if half of them aren't here, it's very hard to get any sense of momentum. And so in the same way, we're kind of replanting. And so again, I want to challenge you, um, if you are around, to really prioritize the gathering as much as it's up to you. Again, we're not getting legalistic, but, but again, uh, we want to engage in worship together. We want to hear from the Spirit together. Um, you have spiritual gifts, which are the way that God manifests his love through you to other people, and we need those things. It's not just about me preaching or the music. Um, there is a one anothering that happens on Sundays, and again, we, we, we'd, love, um, we'd love your gifts, man. We, we'd love your presence. Um, and so that's gathering. Now, I want to touch on something else I've gotten a lot of questions about, right? So there's the gathering, there's the temple courts. Um, there's also this idea of house to house, this idea of scattering. And um, scattering feels more complicated than ever. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but, but we have a track record of encouraging people to live in Uptown. Our church is Restored Church Uptown. Um, for a while, right, if there was a Normal Heights slash North Park Landlord Association, I am pretty sure I would have won an award for the amount of people who were renting in Uptown in response to encouragement from us as leaders to meaningfully live in community by living near one another. That the odds of you living life together are a lot higher if you live in proximity to each other. And I think that's been our culture for a long time. And by the way, our desire to see people live life together as family has not changed. That has not changed. Um, but as time has gone on, the demographics of our church have changed. And it's made it much harder to encourage everyone to live in Uptown. Um, rent continues to skyrocket. Uh, we are adding quite a few children into the life of the church and space is tight. Uh, many people are thinking of moving, especially as their families grow, and it gets tricky to pull off life in Uptown, uh, or it gets hard to come anywhere near being able to buy an affordable home when you're ready to purchase one. And so that being said, um, I think the reality is we are moving towards becoming a citywide regional church, not just a neighborhood church. 
And as that happens, and as we scatter around the city, I wanted you to consider a few things. People have been asking about this, so I, I'm going to speak to it. Um, just some guidelines as we scatter, okay? Um, one is this. Uptown, again, will be where uh, Sunday gatherings will be. I still think it's where a lot of our classes will be, Alpha, things like that, summer school, uh, with kind of Hardy Square and all that stuff. Um, and I think Uptown's great because it's so central. Um, I mean, from North Park, you can get to National City, South Bay in 10 minutes or less. You get to the college area in 10 minutes or less. You get to Point Loma in 10 minutes. Uh, you get to Claremont in 10 minutes, kind of northwest, east, south, uh, within reason. You can be most, a lot of places that make up the city of San Diego when traffic isn't going on. Um, now, again, we don't want to uh, be legalistic about where to live. That being said, I think it would be, be very tricky to pull off meaningful life in community if you move more than 20 minutes away without traffic from kind of uptown, okay? Does that make sense? Um, like I think it's going to be hard, uh, and so I just want you to, to factor that in. Um, uh, for example, I, I, but again, I think there's a lot of spaces. For example, um, in the last two years, I know Joseph and Tara have moved to kind of the Alley Gardens area. Uh, uh, we have moved down to Fairmount Park, Jackie and I. We are six minutes from North Park, even though... We're not in Uptown, and they are there. And I can get to their house in about six minutes from my house, even though I'm south of Uptown and they're north and east because of the freeways. So um, it's possible to still be very close and see each other consistently. Um, but I encourage you guys to, to think that through. Um, would you consider where other people in the church are moving? Um, would you try to live near some brothers and sisters from the church? Would that factor into your decision in terms of where you? move, okay? So again, if, if you have to leave Uptown, again, it's understandable, but it might be good to go, hey, where, where are other people moving or where, where are other people considering family and living on mission can be decentralized, um, but I would encourage you not to be all by yourself decentralized, to think about, hey, is there anyone nearby I could do um, life and family and on mission with? Does that make sense? Uh, so it's kind of a little east pocket or south pocket or, 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 or just straight up Uptown pocket, whatever it is, all right? Um, so all I'm asking is, would you consider as you scatter on where you're living in terms of community and mission and all that good stuff, even if you do have to leave uptown, uptown, kind of temple courts. And again, not everyone lived right across from the temple in Acts, okay? So they were spread out. They came together for Sundays, um, but, but there was a, a spread out situation. They came together for the temple. All right, number two, um, so gather and scatter. Number two, practice both gratitude and grief. Practice both gratitude and grief. As I think about our church and I think about the, the life of followers of Jesus in a season, both of these just pop to me. As I say with people pastorally, it is hard to get away from this, uh, practicing both gratitude and grief. Uh, in terms of gratitude, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances. All right, we got all circumstances. Okay. Now, I want you to see real quick, it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. I'm, I love this suffering, God. Give me some more. I love it. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That, that there are always things going wrong in a fallen world. And until Jesus restores it completely, there will be things to grieve over. There will be circumstances that are less than ideal, not just less than ideal, are painful and hard but there's always something for a follower of Jesus in the midst of that that there is to be grateful for. That doesn't negate what's hard, but it means there is always something to be grateful for. Uh, mental health research is catching up to what scripture has taught for centuries that practicing gratitude is good for your emotional health. 
practicing gratitude is good for your emotional health. There's an industry of gratitude journals, right? Taking time to think about what you can be grateful for. And so I want to take a second to just practice gratitude with you this morning. For every follower of Jesus, especially from big to little, there are things to be grateful for. And so I just want to ask you a question from the big things of like the gospel all the way down to the small things like the avocado toast you had this morning that was just tremendous due to the seasoning you put on it or whatever. What can you thank God for? So I just want to take a moment, but as, 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 as much as you're able to, to quiet your heart, would you just take a second and, and internally thank God for what you can thank God for? I'm not saying negate the hard stuff. I'm saying what is there to be grateful for, okay? So let's just take a second. And ask God, man, what is there to be grateful for? And then to actually thank him. Jesus, thank you for, just, just go for it. Jesus, thank you um, for so many things. First, we, the first thing we want to thank you for is, is the gospel itself. Thank you that you did what we could not do for ourselves. You reconciled us to God. Thank you that we are no longer defined by our performance or what people think of us, but what you think of us. And in Jesus, what you think of us is amazing. Thank you, Jesus, that there is no sin or dysfunctional behavior or relational pattern that we are wrestling with that defines us or will win the day out, that one day we will see you and be like you. That's another gospel truth. I also thank you for the men and women who are out here today, who are, who are gathering with us. Um, we have so many amazing people in our church um, who love so many people so faithfully. Thank you for a San Diego day. Uh, this is San Diego weather. We've got the sun. We've got a beautiful breeze. Thank you for a safe space to gather. We don't have to worry about like real, real persecution. We don't have to worry about our physical safety as we gather. Thank you for our kids who are running around and playing. This is so much to be grateful for, and we are, we are grateful for you and what you've done in, in our lives, Jesus, and the lives that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen. Man, I want to encourage you guys to consistently just spend some time looking at, man, what, what, what happened today that I could be grateful for, Jesus? When stuff gets crazy, it's so easy to miss what's good. doesn't mean the crazy stuff's not crazy or hard, but it's even harder and crazier when you miss all that is good. In my uh, counseling cohort, I've told some of you guys about, one of the things they say you want to do as you walk with people is, is you want to help them see the terrain accurately of their life. And they said oftentimes people miss the fact that there's a lot of great stuff about them and their life. They just see the problem that they walk in with. And so I want to encourage you guys to not in a um, denial way, but in a, a, a reality way, reframe and go, man, Things, aren't, things are hard in this area, but there's also some, some beautiful stuff in, in these areas. At the same time as we practice gratitude, we also do need to do another thing that I think we can also miss 
when stuff is crazy. And that's grieve. That's grieve. Uh, in Pete Scazzaro's outstanding book, The Emotional Healthy Church, he writes this, year after year, we deny and avoid, talking about the Western church, we deny and avoid the difficulties and losses of life, the rejections and frustrations. People in our churches often minimize their failures and disappointments. The result is that for many today, at least in the prosperous North America, there is a widespread inability to face pain. This has led to an overall feeling of superficiality and a lack of profound compassion. Our culture trivializes tragedy and loss. Every night on the news, this is 10 years old. Remember, people used to watch news. Uh, uh, every night on the news, we are given pictures of crimes, wars, famines, murders, and natural disasters. They are analyzed and argued over, but there is no lamenting. Our national capacity to grieve is almost lost. We are too busy trying to keep everything as it is and get our own way. When a loss enters our life, we become angry at God and treat it as an alien invasion from outer space. This is unbiblical and a denial of our common humanity. Is it any wonder that so much depression exists in our culture today? The ancient Hebrews physically expressed their laments by tearing their clothes and utilizing sackcloths and ashes. Jesus himself offered up prayer and petitions with loud cries and tears, the book of Hebrews tells us. Jeremiah had six confessions of lament in which he protested to God about his circumstances. After the fall of Jerusalem, he wrote an entire biblical book called Lamentations. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heaven, including a time to mourn, to reject God's seasons for grief and sadness as they come to us is to only live half of our lives. What makes this particularly tragic is that Jesus Christ came to set us free to live life fully, not to escape from reality. And he says this, I love this part. He says, follow how Jesus grieved. Imagine Jesus, the man of sorrows, in the following situations. At the tomb of Lazarus, what if Jesus had not wept, but instead said, come on, everyone, stop all the mourning, get a grip. I'm going to raise this man from the dead. What if his prayer over Jerusalem had gone like this? I wanted to gather you, gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you made your decision. You turned against God. It's too bad. I'm moving on without you. Or when Jesus was on the cross, instead of crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What if he had shouted out over the crowd, God is great. Praise him. Hebrews 5.8 says he learned obedience from what he suffered. So do we. In scripture, the Jesus-like response is neither a spin nor a cover-up. The model and teaching is for us to deal honestly and prayerfully with our losses and disappointments, both big and small. Just like there are big and small things to be grateful for, there are big and small losses. And I found that for a lot of people, if it's a small loss, it's not worth grieving. But I have to tell you that they are losses and they do add up. Grieving is indispensable for a full-orbed spirituality. I suspect David the psalmist and Jeremiah understood this tendency to not let difficult, painful realities into our lives, knowing, however, how indispensable losses are for us to change and grow. They wrote songs and poems of lament for us to sing from generation to generation. I think over the past, uh, let's close quote now, I think over the past year and a half, there has been so much outrage and anger in our culture, but so little grieving. As a culture, we argue over things we should be crying over. 
We spend so much time trying to figure out who's at fault. We don't just go, it doesn't, like we can figure that out, but it's still really sad, the thing that's in front of us. There's been so much loss over the last year and a half. We've lost a way of life. Some of us have lost family members. We've lost church family, right? We've moved out of state. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have saw dreams we thought we were close to experiencing, kind of dashed against the rocks of the circumstances of the past year and a half. Some of us saw romantic relationships end. Some of us experienced miscarriages. Some of us, some of us experienced being let down by parents or friends we always respected. I could go on and on, but church, we need to grieve. And by the way, I'm not like trying to make us this sad church. I'm not gonna write a book like called Sad Church, uh, the restored uptown story. The goal isn't to stay sad. It's actually, ironically, the gateway to move forward out of sadness is to grieve, to let, to let it happen, to move out of it. But if you don't grieve uh, to avoid the pain, uh, but if you don't grieve to avoid the pain, ironically, you're setting yourself up to experience the pain for a lot longer. When we don't grieve, it's like being physically wounded but not allowing the wound to ever heal. It's impacting you whether you want to admit it or not, right? Like if you, if you sprain your ankle, you can keep walking on it with full force. Um, it's just going to get worse. You go, man, I, I, my ankle's fine. Like, ah, you're limping, like you're walking, right? You're walking like a starfish with, with one foot, you know, whatever. whatever. I, I, that wasn't thought through, all right? You're walking badly, all right? You're walking badly. Your limp's telling me it's not good, and it's getting worse. Emotionally, when we don't grieve in a healthy way, we will often turn to numbing behaviors or even hurt others. It will keep us from experiencing Jesus in deep ways because our relationship to him will be superficial, we don't let them into the hard stuff. And so, uh, and by the way, it's true. Our grief should look different than the world's. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who died. In other words, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Okay? So, so we have a hope that Jesus is, re- is redeeming all things and that one day everything will be right. Right? That, that, that belief informs our grieving, but it doesn't mean we don't grieve at all. He doesn't say, beloved, because we have a hope, we do not grieve. He says, we grieve, but we don't do it like people who don't have a hope. Having a redeemer who is slowly but surely working all things out doesn't change the fact that, what we, that we grieve what is broken in the meantime. And I think the greatest example of this in Scripture is even though Jesus knew he was going to heal Lazarus, he didn't pretend that the loss wasn't sad. It was like, oh, man, he's, he's in heaven. It's fine, or whatever, right? right? Everyone's going to get resurrected. You know, he, he goes, no, even though I'm going to do this, this is this moment. This isn't life. We, our souls weren't designed to experience loss. And so it's, it's heartbreaking when it happens. It says Jesus wept even though he was about to raise him from the dead. And so we grieve what is painful as we slowly but surely look to the future with hope. And so I just want to take an, another second, ask you to close your eyes again. No one's going to take your purse. Relax. Clutch it if you want to. Close your eyes for a second. And just ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything that I need to intentionally grieve in this next season? Something I need to let go of? Might be something that's taking much longer than you thought it would. It could be something that's likely not going to happen at all that you always thought would. It could be a person or a relationship that you have lost or has changed. Just take a second. Just ask God. Ask the Spirit. Is there anything you need to grieve? 
what I want to say to you, family, is whatever God's bringing to mind, um, and there might be stuff that you hadn't even thought of in a while or forgot about, or like, man, this is so random, this is coming to mind, but whatever's coming to mind, God is not bringing that up to rub the pain in your face. Again, he, he only brings up that which he wants to heal us from, that which he wants to help us move forward, but to, to, move, to move past it in any real way, we have to move through it. And, um, and so I want to challenge you um, to, uh, if you want to chat, we'd love to chat to you. If you want to jump to pastoral care or a grieving group or uh, need help finding a therapist or just need friends to process with. Um, but we would love to help you, family, depending on how big the loss is, whatever it is. You might need different things. But grieving is indispensable. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just so important, um, even the little losses. Um, by the way, uh, if... if this stuff's resonating. I can't encourage you enough uh, to jump into the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course uh, in summer school with John Dennert. Uh, we're going to explore that stuff. Um, we have some spots available. I would love for you to dive into that to, to start that process of looking at some of those things. So I want to challenge us again to gather and scatter, to practice both gratitude and grief. And last but not, last but not least, which I'm pretty excited about, is to invest in God's mission locally and globally. Invest in God's mission locally and globally. Um, a couple things. Uh, with us moving back to North Park, uh, us having a transition, um, we are going to need um, help. Uh, in many ways, we're replanting the church. Uh, we're, we're restarting some serve teams that have not existed or they've existed in kind of a truncated form for a while over the past year. So it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck season for our church family, very much like a church plant. Um, we've got to get things going again. And as we do that, I want to challenge you to pray through what contributions you can make, both in terms of service, uh, financial generosity, spiritual gifts, time, energy. Uh, we, want to re- we want to challenge you to recommit yourself both to this local church and also to God's mission around the world. Uh, again, through your time, energy, finances, emotions, gifts. Would you take seriously jumping uh, back onto a serve team these next few weeks? Um, um, so, yes, yeah, so that's kind of the local side of this as we, we transition back to North Park. Um, there's also the global side of this. Um, I just got back again from Northern Africa, spent time with Kaya and Kyle. Uh, we wanted to encourage them as it's been a tough year. Um, but as we walked away, we were super encouraged. Like, I was there to encourage. I almost felt guilty. Like, man, I'm, I'm being so encouraged by the stuff that's happening here. Um, there's so many cool things to celebrate with them. Um, they are about as close to fluent as you can be in the local dialect of Arabic. They're about to graduate from language school soon. Um, everyone, I was blowing my mind. Um, it was blowing everyone's mind, frankly. All the locals were like, you're supposed to be speaking French. How do you, right? You know, it was, it was amazing. Um, the other thing that, that I loved was um, they have a ton of friends. Um, Jackie and I got to have multiple meals and share evenings with their Northern African friends. Um, Jackie learned to make uh, baklava, which they call baklewa. Uh, from a local woman, uh, was full of jokes. Um, people respect them so much and seem to really, really love them. Like they're doing relational ministry. Um, one gal came over early before the housewarming party to help cook and clean the house. Like that's friend, that's real friendship, right? Uh, like they're getting in there. They've had people help move. Um, one moment that was particularly moving was when we went to lunch. We met up for lunch. A uh, guy came over to the house, uh, the, and he's the guy that that met Jesus. Uh, through their work. Uh, his name is Ahmed. Uh, I thought um, saying his name was a huge security risk, and Kyle was like, that's the second most common name in this country, so it's fine. You don't give a last name in a picture, it, it's fine. 
And um, he shared his testimony with me and Jackie, Kyle, Kyle translated. And um, he shared what Jesus means to him, his desire to grow and learn. He was like, I've been telling Kyle, we need to start a church. Like, we need to start a church. Me and my roommate, we're ready to go. Uh, we're ready to go in our neighborhood. Um, he's, a, he's a ferocious evangelist. Uh, he's been almost beaten a few times. Um, he's experienced persecution already, and he has more joy than half the people I talk to in America who don't experience persecution. Um, we had a really cool moment. We told him that our children pray for him, and um, he was super moved, man. Like, he was just like, what? Like, me? Like, you guys care about me um, in this place? Thank you so much. And in that moment, man, I was so proud to be part of a family of churches who has consistently prioritized the nations. We haven't done it perfectly, but we've sought to continue to do it. And I remembered, man, we raised $140,000 to send Kaya and Kyle to provide what they needed for the first few years so they could focus on learning the language, building relationships, proclaiming the gospel, which is exactly what they have been doing. It's been a phenomenal investment. They're not spending all their time trying to fundraise and freaking out and da-da-da. And so now we have a tradition uh, as a family of churches called Give Love. Uh, where once a year, with the exception of last year, for obvious reasons, uh, where we raise money across our family of churches, and it all goes to a new gospel worker church that isn't inside any of the churches who raise the money. So we don't get anything from We're giving it away. So it's money that goes outside our four walls. Um, and this year, we have the privilege of doing that again. Okay, so today, Restore Temecula is actually celebrating Give Love. Um, yep, they're doing it. Um, and we're going to be kicking off Give Love Week today. Uh, the funds live and go to restoreduptown.com and select the India Fund, uh, India 2021. Um, but that being said, um, I, I want to share more about what we're giving to you this year, uh, but I'm going to need some help to do that. So to help me, I want to invite Maria on up here. Give it up for Maria. So uh, I guess a couple questions for you, Maria. I guess the first one is this, is what kind of ministry are you looking to do in India and what types of people are you looking to reach and disciple? Hi, everyone. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Maria, and I've been interning here at Restored for over a year now. Pretty crazy. Um, I, a little bit of a backstory. Um, before coming to Restored, before uh, meeting Andy and a lot of you guys, I spent about almost four years living in India, working amongst more of a rural village setting. And it was in the midst of meeting Andy and working in the villages that God really began to open my heart and my eyes to see that in my experience, nobody was reaching the urban upper class English speaking Indian. And so the journey began into praying um, about what that could look like. And India is a really unique country. 65% um, of India is under the age of 35. That's 2.1 billion people of 3 billion people. And um, I started to meet people, and God started to put people in my life who were a lot like you and me, who drank lattes and beer and hung out and were just like normal. And normal in the sense of like familiar, you know, who were genuine friends, not just ministry. Um, and so that is kind of who I am going back to. And there's kind of two facets. The first is making disciples amongst that group. Um, God has put in my life some incredible followers of Jesus that are already Christian who um, I want to disciple and hopefully build community from and see God um, just like bring the gospel to a place that for over 2,000 years has been less than 2% Christian. 
Um, and I get really excited um, about the possibilities in that. On the other side of that is that we have been for a year now praying through and sorting through what it could look like to start a business in my cities. We're going to password protected, right? Um, in my cities. Okay, IT sector. Um, so India, my city specifically, is like a huge IT tech place. You have JP Morgan, you have, and banks, and just Amazon's largest headquarters are there. It's just like a really niche place where even Indians from other parts of India come there to work. And we started dreaming about what it could look like to have a business, um, maybe like a cafe or a restaurant that kind of was an entryway into the community, um, an entryway into these urban English-speaking Indians. And so that is two facets of what I'll be doing. It's one is establishing a business, and the other is making disciples. So the business also, what it does, I don't know if you're going to ask me this. I'm just going to keep going. Um, so the business does three things. Um, India is one of the hardest nations in the world to be a Christian. It's voted, been voted top 10 hardest places to be a Christian for two years in a row, above nations like Syria, Iraq, China, um, mostly because of just radical persecution and intense nationalism when it comes to um, India as a nation is very nationalist, so to be Indian is to be Hindu, and when you try to kind of bring any other facet of belief into that, it gets met with a lot of persecution. I will caveat that with, for a foreigner, the worst thing that could happen is you get blacklisted and you're never allowed back in the country. So that's pretty awful, but it's not, you know, persecution, it's not getting beaten, it's not um, anything like that. It is for them, it is for them, but not for us. Um, and the second thing it does is that as missionaries, so I've been overseas for four years pre-COVID. I've met tons of missionaries, um, amazing people doing amazing things. Um, but part of what happens is missionaries have to be supported almost their entire life. And what a business does, God willing, is it will provide the funds for me to be funded and also to help provide for our church plans or our disciple making in the future long term, um, which is like a really exciting and I feel like responsible way of stewarding um, like the generosity of like the restored churches and it even frees us up as a community to support other missionaries and do other things as well. Um, so I get excited about that. And the third thing it does is because of the Hindu nationalism, it's becoming increasingly hard to stay in India long term. Um, I was on a tourist visa, believe it or not, for four years. And with a business cover, with a business actually operating, um, it's just such an easy way to just be like, this is why I'm here. This is what I do. And to be able to operate um, from a place of just safety and a place of not having to worry about being kicked out of the country. So. Thanks, Maria. Uh, give it up for Maria. Yeah. Um, so in terms of practically helping, um, we are trying to raise money uh, to get a business started. Uh, and so she's been working with uh, an American lawyer, an Indian lawyer, and um, an, an Indian entrepreneur who started quite a few successful uh, restaurants and coffee shops in the country. And so um, we're looking at um, uh, startup funds for like two years on the business. Um, as well as some, um, a, a few, uh, well, that is primarily it. Uh, she's gonna be working um, on her own uh, support uh, for that first year. Um, but that being said, we are looking to um, raise 
$120,000 this year for this year's Give Love. Again, we did 140 for Kyle and Kaya. We did over 100 um, for the church before that. And so again, it's always crazy. I'm always shocked at what comes in. Um, but, um, but this week, um, we do want to challenge you uh, to pray through that. And um, one other thing, though, is we don't want to just um, raise, uh, raise money for what Maria's doing. Um, as many of you guys know, COVID has ravaged India as a nation. Um, and as a church, we are connected to um, Anthem Denver, a church that we did Give Love for before. I think we gave them almost $80,000 uh, a couple of years ago for Give Love. Um, they have actually been pretty active in India as a church. And they've, um, there's a couple different people in that church have been going every year for a while. And um, uh, well, I, I was preaching there a few weeks ago, and while I was there, um, they got word regarding um, a pastor that they work with there. He's actually been to Denver uh, and ministered at Anthem Denver, and, um, and they would go to see him regularly. And, um, and so COVID uh, impacted them in a really, really hard way. And so anyways, um, uh, I got this email uh, that describes kind of what's going on. It says, Andy, thank you for being willing to help in any way. Um, in April of this year, Horrific stories starting spill, started spilling out of India, recounting the tragedies that thousands of Indians were facing in the wake of seemingly unstoppable virus. Family members were forced to watch their loved ones die after being turned away from overfilled hospitals. The government attempted to set up oxygen stations for the sick to have some hope of surviving, but an overall shortage of oxygen further uh, frustrated this plan. People were dying at such a rapid pace that crematoriums could not keep up with the body count. Tragic pictures hit the news of children uh, building funeral pyres for their parents and hundreds of bodies floating in the Ganges River after families gave up finding a place to cremate their dead. Um, she says, our brothers and sisters from India have reached out for help. They sent messages asking for prayer and sharing stories of loss and desperation. Um, they are being turned away at hospitals. People are dying all around them. Bodies piling up in the streets. And according to them, the government hasn't been doing anything to help. In May, we lost a very dear friend and faithful servant to COVID-19. Uh, Jonathan Swasing was an incredible man. His ministry spread throughout Northeast India. Uh, Jonathan was a 41-year-old pastor and church planner in the slums of Delhi, uh, who we visited every year. Uh, he and his wife, Sarah, ran a church planning program, an orphanage called Simon House, and an after-school program for kids in the slums to help them with their education and schooling. Um, uh, when, his family was, uh, when, he, when his family fell sick with COVID, it was apparent that Jonathan's condition was much worse than his wife and children's. He was able to find a hospital with an open bed, but his condition continued to deteriorate. One night we were sent uh, an urgent message to pray for Jonathan. The doctor said he would die within 24 hours if he was not admitted to an ICU and put on oxygen. However, there were no beds in an ICU. Jonathan passed away the next day, leaving behind his wife, Sarah, and two children, Nathan and uh, Jemina. He also left behind a legacy in many ministries that served the least of these in India. Uh, we've been partnering with a small nonprofit that is able to send financial aid to Jonathan uh, and several other families and house churches in India. We are unable to send teams of people to India right now, but our prayers and financial support uh, go an incredibly long way. And, and by the way, I just want you to see this is a whole different s section of India, uh, uh, you know, in, in the slums of Delhi. Uh, this is very different than who Maria's reaching. Both are important. Um, both are going to look different. Uh, it says, after Jonathan passed, several financial needs arose. Uh, the first one is the, the Swasing family's rent. Uh, Sarah is going to, that's his wife, will continue to live in the family's apartment in Delhi until Nathan completes high school. This will be at least two years, but covering the next one and a half years of rent will be a huge help to the family. Um, it's $315 a month, uh, over 18 months is what they're shooting for. Uh, also, Simon House Orphanage, Sarah Johnman's wife, will eventually take over fundraising to keep the orphanage and other ministries running. 
Uh, there were more pressing needs that Jonathan was actively raising money for throughout the year that will need more immediate attention. Providing for the orphanage in any way will relieve Sarah of that pressure and give her a year to recover from losing Jonathan and also learn the ropes of the various ministries. Uh, an additional 500 a month to cover books, tutors, food, uniforms uh, comes to about $6,000 for a year. Um, and they are also working to uh, dig a water well uh, deeper. Uh, Jonathan was actually working pretty hard on that before this happened. Uh, she said, getting fresh water is always a challenge, so a deeper well will secure easier and more reliable access to fresh water for the orphanage. Uh, Sarah's getting an estimate of the cost, but it should be somewhere between five and 10,000 US dollars. She said, thank you for offering to help the Indian church. Your faithfulness and heart to give is incre incredibly encouraging to the Indian Christians we support. It's a reminder to them that they are not alone. Uh, you asked for a round number. Uh, I would try to push for ten to 15,000 if at all possible. Obviously, that's a span. Uh, $12,000 uh, is the hard number. Uh, and anything will go towards Simon. Anything additional will go towards Simon's house's other needs, and that alone will relieve Sarah of fundraising for a year. Either way, ten thousand dollars, or to be honest, anything would feel like a miracle and relieve a lot of pressure in the next year. Uh, James one twenty seven says, "Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world." And so we want to um, help meet the needs of this family as they seek to meet the needs of others. Uh, and so. Um, I just want to say it's an honor to get to care for people, um, for the, the families of leaders. It's something that we've, um, we've sought to do in the past. So you guys know, uh, the Sri Lanka Easter bombing a few years ago, um, we raised money for a family that we supported for over three years um, as they were transitioning to uh, a husband uh, who was the head of household pretty, you know, in that culture and uh, the oldest son uh, passing away as the wife was, had to transition um, into job training and providing in the meantime. And I'm so proud that we do things like that. Uh, this is a chance to do that same thing, to provide for orphans and widows. Again, literally, I saw a picture of him. I was like, this guy could be my age, um, that he has kids um, in, uh, uh, in high school. is um, it's just so rough, man. And so anyways, um, Give Love this year is kicking off today in Temecula. We are looking to raise upwards of $135,000. Uh, South Bay and Uptown are next Sunday, June 20th. Again, you can start making... Uh, can start giving today, though, uh, restoreduptown.com slash give. Again, you can click, make a donation, go to India 2021. A few weeks later, LA and Harbor City are going to jump in. Um, and so I, I'm personally praying and asking God to provide through his people, um, again, um, uh, maybe more than he ever has, to love a bunch of different types of people in South Asia. Um, we'll reach in with the, the message of the gospel. Uh, again, I'd love to see Uptown. I'd love to see us raise 40,000 as a church. I know we've done more than that before. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, it's complicated. But if you um, are able to, we'd love to do that. So just basically this week, at the end of the day, though, this week, would you go before God and just ask him, just ask the Spirit, hey, what are you calling me to give? Uh, I'm not interested in, like, forcing anyone to do anything. Um, what are you calling me to give? We've always said, hey, it's wide open. For some people uh, who have means, it's going to be a lot of money. For others, it's going to be a small amount. For others, it's like, I literally can't give. Um, but, but, but as we all do our piece, uh, some big, some small, um, I'd love to see the mission funded in these spaces and places. Um, I know we've gone a little long today uh, with interviews and stuff like that, but um, would you guys stand with me just for one last musical worship song? I feel like today there's a lot of different things I was, I was calling us to, uh, to gather and scatter, to um, practice gratitude and grief, to invest locally and globally. And there's a lot of stuff to do. And I want to say that at the, at the end of the day, um, our push to do any of these things has to be rooted in the fact that something was done for us. The things that we do for God um, come, from that, come from the fact that God has done something for us. And so um, we, 
again, we are not people who um, just randomly gather. We're gathering to worship the one who gave everything for us. Um, we don't randomly jump in to serve uh, the church or the community. We are a people who have been served sacrificially through the cross. Um, when we talk through ideas of generosity, we aren't people, again, the New Testament, the way it encourages believers to give. It doesn't go, give, just because you should. It goes, consider Jesus who was rich who became poor on your behalf, that we are motivated, we've experienced a lavish generosity in the gospel. And so as you consider and ask the Spirit, as you open yourself up and say, Spirit, what do you want to do through me? What are you calling me to? What, what does this look like? Um, whether it's serving or finances or your emotional world, whatever it is, whatever he's asking you to step out and trust him to do, I just want to pray over us that, that it would be rooted in a response to worship in the Bible's response to you, God is. That it would be in response to what has been done for us in the gospel of Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and pray that. We'll sing one last song. Would you this week be asking the Spirit, what are you calling me to do to give, uh, how to engage in this next season in the life of this church? Jesus, thank you for your radical generosity. Thank you for your radical service. Jesus, you died for the church. You're coming back for the church. The church is your bride. And we don't deserve you. I always get the picture, Jesus, when I just think about you and the church, I just think about this idea that we are just not the, I, I feel like your friend, I feel like the angels must just often be like, no, 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 no. Did you see who Jesus is marrying? Did you see the girl he picked? She is, she is not kind. She is not smart. She's not pretty. She is not so many things, but he loves her like he loves her. She's a mess, but he loves her. And Jesus, I think that that's true, that the, the heart of the gospel is that, that that's true, that as people, we do not deserve you. You actually are too good for us. But you want us. You delight in us. You adore us. You pursue us. You lay down your life for us. And so, Spirit, I just ask that you would help us, that you, you would guide us, that you would... Show us how to respond, how to love you as our, as our bridegroom. For some of us, it's going to look like financial gifts, but for some of us, it's going to look like trusting you with our pain and our grief and looking at parts of our heart we've never wanted to look at before, but to follow you faithfully, we've got to bring you into that stuff. For some of us, it's going to be prioritizing your, prioritizing your people. Whatever it is coming out of today, Lord, would it be rooted in the fact that we have a loving bridegroom, that we don't, we don't do any of these things to earn your love, but we do them in response to your love that is sure and consistent and just freaking amazing. So we love you, Jesus. Please do in us and through us more than we could ask or imagine. In your name we pray. Amen.